Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm joined today with a special co-host, Taylor Pearson, and our, our special guest is Drew Banzel. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Thank you, Eric. Awesome. I think we start with some introductions. Drew, can you introduce yourself a little bit? What is, uh, what is Unchained and what, uh, what are you more, most excited about in crypto right now? And I'm excited to get, uh, get a bit weird in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, my name is Dhruv. Um, thank you for the introduction, Eric. Um, I work with Unchained Capital. We are a company that's trying to bring more value to long-term holders of cryptocurrency. So in particular, that means today we give loans to folks who can post Bitcoin or Ethereum as collateral, loans in U.S. dollars. Folks pay interest payments. It's a great way to get liquidity from your crypto without having to sell your assets right now, which is something a lot of crypto holders don't want to do in today's market. So it's a really cool service. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about custody and various other security um, aspects. But my background is originally I'm a physicist, and I got into Bitcoin partly because of what it meant about energy and distributed systems and all sorts of cool um, aspects like that. And I spent a lot of time thinking about those issues as well. Cool. My name is Taylor. My background is mostly marketing. Uh, I've worked, done digital marketing roles within companies from sort of uh, an advisory basis over the last few years. And then I'm also a blogger, writer. Uh, I have one book called The End of Jobs and uh, working on uh, some more stuff and have gotten sucked down this blockchain rabbit hole uh, over the last two or three years. Cool. Taylor, uh-huh. do you want to take us from here? Yeah. So I guess the way I sort of, uh, I've had some interesting conversations with Drew and heard him give a couple of talks over the last year or two. And so I picked some of my sort of most interesting uh, or my personal favorite things to cover. So we're going to sort of start this episode with the least weird and then just gradually and gradually get further and further off the, the deep end. So I guess the thing I want to start with is this idea. Uh, you had a, a diagram on a slide and a talk you gave earlier in 2018, with this idea that sort of Bitcoin and Ethereum both had sort of the same end state. I think that the layers you gave were sort of a a value layer at the bottom, a payments layer on top, whether that's uh, Lightning or sort of the Ethereum equivalent, whatever the L2 with maybe a mesh network and then sort of an apps layer. Could you talk about just that model and how you think about that? Yeah, sure. I I sometimes think it's it's the way that um, adherence of each of those Blockchains talk about their asset. Bitcoiners often like the phrase sound money. Ethereum um, advocates sometimes use the phrase world computer. And it kind of immediately, and it doesn't mean that both sides don't have aspects of the other. Bitcoin definitely allows certain kinds of computations to occur. And Ethereum is definitely valuable um, in some of the same ways that uh, sound money might be. So I think there's overlap. There's also a choice of what to optimize for that's different in each of those communities. I do think that there's the same thing, quote unquote, broadly interpreted that they're going for, which is a stack of services that are rooted in the idea of, of a digital token. So they're rooted in sound money or, or value. That's why I think of that as the base of, of the layer. And then above that is the ability to exchange that value. So payments, that's a second layer, um, literally layer two, right? In, in blockchain, that's, that's the way to talk about not the core blockchain, but second layer services that have different trust properties built on top of it. So a second layer to handle payments. Um, in my view, there's a third layer that handles things like networking and storing and transferring data. Like so the sort of uh, the sort of necessary functions of like the body of the internet, right? To move all those bits around and store them and keep them ready where they need to be. Huge parts of the internet today are dedicated to those tasks. So if we're really going to build distributed applications, we need some layer that handles that. And I think that comes after payments because that layer is easier to build if you've already built a payments layer, which is itself easy, only possible if you have something of value right at the bottom. And then finally, the layer on top, I view as applications because if you have robust markets that let you buy bandwidth, store data, pay for things, um, all anchored by this thing that is really sound money, you can build some really compelling applications that are um, at once like world-changing, probably also pretty subversive. I view Bitcoin as taking that in the order that I presented it, really focusing first on sound money and conservative monetary policy and conservative development culture, but at the same time, 
very rock solid development culture and, and emphasizing stability and consensus and distribution over most other aspects of, of the of the code base. Um, and then as we can see with the Lightning Network, Layer 2 is already being built. I think years from now, we could start seeing things like Layer 3 and Layer 4 arise. And a lot of Bitcoiners are okay with that sequence. They're, they're comfortable having it take that long because maybe they value uh, it in that order. Whereas I think a lot of Ethereum adherents are going in the opposite order where they're saying, let's start by building a thing that's a generic application development platform, a Turing machine inside of a blockchain. And then because that thing can be used to tokenize things like data and bandwidth and other kinds of services, we can drop down a layer into the infrastructure layer and then, of course, payments, you know, and then because of all those things, it becomes valuable. And that's why it should have value. In my mind, it's, it's a little bit of a backwards approach to the same stack. I'm waiting for the use case that is so compelling and so subversive that it has to be put on a blockchain right away. Sound money is a use case that's like that for, for the people that believe in it. It is subversive, and that's why it has to be built on a blockchain, and that's why it's the core function of a blockchain. That's really Bitcoin's approach, because given how subversive it is to unseat the state apparatus of money, you want it to be something that's distributed. You want it to be something that you can't shut down. You want it to be something that's hard to trace, and if you're its inventor, you may want to disappear. Whereas if you're not doing that and you're building something that's a world computer, in my view, if you start from that point, you have to find something similar. You have to find something that's extremely subversive. That's the, the reason for this thing to exist in the form of a blockchain. Otherwise, it's better to start um, at that core base level and build back up to it. Do ICOs feel that? Like, I mean, I would argue that's sort of like the killer app, quote unquote, for Ethereum right now. It's international capital raises or capital formation. Sure, right. It can be thought of as Ethereum has started by saying, let's just make you get to the end point of what you wanted, which is the ability to have all these cool distributed applications and companies and complex structures. But some of the basic functions like, hey, are we really a robust framework for store uh, uh, for storing value long term? Do we have a scalable infrastructure to even send Ethereum at large scales? Neither of which I think is really true of Bitcoin, by the way, either. But at least those are problems that are foundational in Bitcoin right now. Whereas Ethereum, there's already this culture of like just developing apps and selling tokens on top of it. I mean, I think that's incredible. I think part of the reason Ethereum is so valuable and compelling and interesting in the community is because it was the first blockchain to even allow that. I'm not trying to minimize the accomplishment of being able to do ICOs in a totally distributed way. That's really cool. The question is, I think like a lot of people are saying these days, what have most of those ICOs actually accomplished? And as they start to accomplish it, they start to suffer from scalability issues, right? Because like, like Bitcoin, Ethereum doesn't yet have its layer two figured out. So just anything that happens on the chain is very difficult to scale. Um, and so for that reason, I think, um, again, starting from blockchain and moving up into Lightning Networks and then building applications on top of them is a more defensible architectural approach to how to actually decentralize the world. So in this architecture, sort of a lot of the ICOs that have launched on Ethereum, you know, like storage or bandwidth or whatever sort of resource they're provisioning, those sort of exist at a layer above the payments layer above whatever the equivalent of the lightning network is. I mean, most of them are built into the bottom layer. Most ICE, like most ICOs involve transactions, which are just Ethereum transactions. So when you move around tokens of an ERC 20 token, you're, you're doing it as part of an Ethereum transaction. You're paying all the same costs of a blockchain backed transaction. You're getting all the same benefits. I mean, that's the, major innovation of the lightning network is by not being a blockchain and 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 plasma has the this is the same idea in plasma plasma is a very analogous kind of system in ethereum by not being blockchains but by being iou networks built on top of blockchains you lose a lot of the benefits of being a blockchain transaction which is irreversibility and um, <clears throat> surviving in perpetuity forever but you get a lot of benefits which is you can go fast and you can hopefully scale up and so by making certain trade-offs around distributedness um, and having certain amount of hubbiness in terms of lightning hub providers you can hope to access a greater um, level of throughput um, in the network and that's a, a, a considered choice that application developers and users can make no one forces you to use the lightning network you're free to use bitcoin as it exists today but you should expect that your application is inefficient and costs a lot because on-chain transactions can and should be expensive that's the that's the bitcoiners view on that um, in ethereum we've because it's so much more capable at layer one than Bitcoin, because it already is Turing complete and allows you to build these application coins, people have done it. And that's really cool. And it's an amazing accomplishment that it's possible. It doesn't change the fact that the most important thing to deliver, in my view, for Ethereum is a layer two. 
that allows it to start scaling and allow people to start transferring those ERC-20 tokens with large volumes that would be required to actually enable real business use cases. Right now, Ethereum, like Bitcoin, suffers from the major use case uh, being hodling. That's pretty much what people do with it. Um, and, and investment and trading, right? But again, that's all happening today on layer one. So sort of the next thing as we get weirder is this idea, uh, you sent me this Venn diagram sometime last year, and it was sort of a picture, if you can imagine, sort of a four-part Venn diagram. One was cryptography, one was distributed systems, one was economics, and one was political science. And this idea that sort of blockchains uh, sit at the intersection of these four four disciplines. And I think part of the way you phrase it is, you know, blockchains are both technologies and social movements. Um, what, did, what did you mean by that? They are, there's a technological aspect behind Bitcoin, the first blockchain that is shared by every other thing that calls itself a blockchain. And the aspects there are like things like cryptography. There's a lot of cryptography involved. There's a lot of distributed systems theory involved, leaderless systems. How do you get a system that has no leader to converge to a, an opinion, right? When you have many independent parts, how do you get them to converge to the same idea of truth without having someone in charge or without having a hierarchy? That's a, that's a, that's a problem that computers oftentimes have to solve on the internet. And so there is that aspect of what a blockchain does, but there are many things which do those which have those aspects. They're cryptographic systems that are distributed that are not blockchains. And so by making that diagram, I tried to split apart and sort of decompose the idea of a blockchain into various disciplines and show that there's a lot of things that superficially, if you confuse cryptography and, <clears throat> and distributed systems theory with what with blockchains, you're going to think like a distributed database is a blockchain. You're going to think this thing that powers a search engine is a blockchain. And it's not. It's just a distributed system. And then similarly, you know, or almost conversely, we should say, if you, if you don't recognize that blockchains are, are also like, so they have technology, but if you don't recognize that there's a social aspect to what they are, you're kind of missing the point of why anyone would find them valuable. It's something that was mentioned, you know, it's, it's occasionally trotted out on Twitter and all sorts of places. Satoshi put a little bit of political text in the very first Bitcoin block that he or she made. And so that, that right there gives you a signal that Bitcoin is a political like entity in, in, in its existence. But I think an even stronger signal is the idea that we have to decide to value Bitcoin. And the decision to value Bitcoin is a personal decision that people decide to make, often arbitrary reasons, at different points during Bitcoin's adoption curve. The later and later in the adoption curve of Bitcoin, when it's bigger and bigger and it's more and more momentum, you can argue that that decision is made out of fear. Uh, falling behind or out of dis- or a certain <clears throat> misplaced sense of obviousness. But in the early days, the people that decided to believe Bitcoin was valuable were hallucinating. They were d- just deciding that they wanted this to be true. They wanted to live in a world where this was true. They, they thought that might, that might happen and it was worth the asymmetric risk of believing in it now and putting a little bit of computing power or money into it at an early day. And so for that reason, it's, it's a decision they came to without truly any rational evidence. It's something that they wanted to be true. It's a social movement, a change they wanted to see happen to the world and they thought that other people would agree with. And so that's how it began. And I think the clearest way to think about that is how there's a certain broken symmetry even in any, in any blockchain project between this is something developers come to know very quickly when they work inside of blockchains, but maybe other people don't know about as much. Um, when you say Bitcoin, what I really hear is the Bitcoin mainnet, right? The, the main network production version of the Bitcoin network that has the most nodes and has, you know, digital tokens that are worth thousands of dollars each um, and trades online. There's also, of course, Bitcoin Cash and various forks of that main Bitcoin network. But there's also in parallel to the main net a test network that just runs for developers to use. And I mean, what's the real difference between a testnet Bitcoin and a mainnet Bitcoin? Both networks are built out of volunteers, computers online from open source software. Both networks have miners. They really are testnet miners. Both networks have transactions and transaction fees that are paid in Bitcoin. So there's hardware wallets that work with testnet just like with mainnet. It's really just a parallel system that we've agreed that the price of those tokens is zero. And we've agreed that the ones over here that come from the Genesis block that Satoshi created, those are the valuable ones. And one thing that's cool about Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency is you can trace that. You can trace that your coin goes all the way back to the Genesis block and know that it does and have that be verified and protected by proof of work. That's a cool feature, but it's ultimately arbitrary. Um, and the arbitrariness there is, is the social aspect here. Like people have to decide that they like what Bitcoin represents 
and whatever that means to them, political freedom, anarchy, you know, screw the state, uh, Austrian economics, screw the banks. Like there's a lot of sometimes positive, sometimes negative reasons why a person would want to join that social movement. Um, a lot of times it's driven just by like a uh, desire to take gains. Like, hey, other people seem to be doing this. Let me get in there. Um, a lot of those people will sell their Bitcoin in a down market, and a lot of people have recently. But many of them sort of just become a new cohort that sort of joins the social movement and realizes that what they bought actually could be a really new, interesting, compelling form of money and that everyone else will eventually figure that out. Um, and so in that sense, I mean that, like, going back to your question, the technologies and social movements, Bitcoin and blockchains are really, like, um, my new way of saying that is, like, they're political technologies. Like, they're a technology for building political systems. We've never in the history of the world had technologies like that before. We've had telecommunications technologies, like, like the telegraph and internet and social networks that we've used to talk to each other and communicate, but we've never built technologies that are dedicated towards building political entities that are self-sustaining, mimetically almost, right? And Bitcoin was the first such example. I mean, it does so by, it's built out of technology, but what it really is, is a social movement. So that, I guess the next thing I was going to ask is sort of one of the descriptions I've heard you give before that I think is really interesting is this idea that you know Bitcoin often gets compared to the internet, right? This is the next internet, quote unquote. The diagram or the analogy you've given is, you know, there was this line that sort of went from the telegraph to the telephone to radio TV to the internet. And that was sort of its own one self-contained thing. And that Bitcoin and blockchains more broadly are actually this this totally separate thing, right? It's not, it's not sort of a, a continued path on this evolution of telecommunication technology. Could you talk about that, what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's what I mean by the phrase political technology, right? That in, in my view of, of technology history here, I'm, 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 I'm an engineer, but I'm not a historian. The telegraph is the first example that I can think of, of what I would call telecommunications technology. Now, there's examples before the telegraph of people communicating over long distances, like smoke signals or firing cannons and light and mirrors. There's various things like that that have happened over time. But really, the telegraph is the first telecommunications technology, by which I in particular mean it, it uses uh, communication, which is essentially near instant. So it's based in light or it's wires, right? Like it's instant communication. It uses a discrete encoding for information. So like kind of like Morse code or some or letters, it uses that scheme. And it's uh, distributed out over a network. Right. That's the other aspect of telecommunications. Telegraph it was was had a network that it had to run upon. That combination is really, I think, the key idea of what defines telecommunications technology. And then there were many, many revolutions in telecommunications technology. Like instead of having to use wires, you could have it just broadcast it using electromagnetic radiation. That's like the radio. Instead of having just text be what you could encode, what about being able to encode video and audio? That's like moving into radio and television. And then finally, you know, instead of having you know, one-to-many broadcasting, what about many-to-many? -many? What about having devices in your pocket that can, you know, be part of the telecommunications network? And then that's the internet. And in theory, a sufficiently broad-minded person upon witnessing the telegraph could say, could see all those multiplications. They could say, what if you just minim like shrunk this thing, took away the wires, made it super cheap, put one in everybody's pocket, and let everybody talk to everybody, like, and have, have radio and TV and cameras? It's crazy because no one in 1848 would have had those thoughts, but and from a modern perspective, we can see how all those inventions are just you know, like aligned from that core idea of discretizing information and transmitting it instantly over a network. And I think Bitcoin is compared to the internet because it happens on the internet. Like you need the internet to have Bitcoin transactions today. That's the way it works. But it's different. It's, it's not the end point of a long sequence of generalizations and optimizations and supply chain innovations like the internet is in from the telegraph. It's something categorically new. It's a political technology. So in that sense, I think Bitcoin and the block and the blockchains of today are like the telegraph from 1848. And in 150 years, we will have the internet of this, of this new class of technology. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm extremely interested in the world that has such a technology as that. When you say political technology, I guess what comes to mind for me is like democracy. Like I, it wasn't a hard technology, so to speak. It was sort of a social technology. Like, do you think is that like a more is that a better? Analogy? I mean, I, I would say democracy is a, it's a, certainly a social movement. It's and it's a political movement. Um, but it's not a technology. It's, it's been supported by technologies, right? Like by having people be able to live longer, by having better communications technology, by having uh, innovations in economics and, and, and 
monetary theory and uh, even just uh, vaccines, you could argue all sorts of stuff have helped democracy, the political process. I'm arguing that blockchains are something stronger than that. They're a political technology. They're a means by which we engineer political systems. What is a Nakamoto point? The Nakamoto point. That's my attempt to name a po- an equilibrium point in a balance that I see eventually occurring. And I think the, the easiest way to to reason into the existence of the Nakamoto point is to consider the debate that sometimes occurs over a blockchain that uses proof of work like Bitcoin about its energy usage. Like there are various articles you may read that Bitcoin uses, you know, X percentage of the, uh, of the world's energy, or it uses um, as much energy as some country over here that, by the way, secretly may have a population of five or 10 million people. I'm not trying to minimize the amount of energy that Bitcoin uses. It uses a lot of energy. It uses about, you know, in my estimates, a thousandth of the world's energy. That is a lot, but from another perspective, it's about as much energy as a nuclear power plant uses so, or, or produces. So if you had a mid-sized large nuclear power plant, you'd, have a, uh, you'd be producing about as much power as the whole Bitcoin network uses, which is to say a lot, but not an earth-changing you know, amount. This is a, still a tiny fraction of world energy production, usage, and revenue. But at the same time, I think the articles that, that complain about Bitcoin's energy usage are implicitly putting it in the context of, hey, this is an arms race, which is true. Bitcoin proof of work is an arms race. Um, There's a fixed supply of Bitcoin to be earned every 10 minutes. And the more fraction of the world's hash power you command, the larger fraction of that supply you can earn. And so people can, through innovation and investment, start to outcompete each other. That's one of the, I think, the, one of the aspects in which proof of work significantly differs from proof of stake um, in some ways in my mind. And so because of this, it means that people are incentivized to get more and more hash power and use more and more energy at the end of the day. So Bitcoin, you know, in 10 years has grown to a thousandth of the world's energy usage. That's incredible. That's really actually something that some people might be afraid of because they might say, well, where does it end? You know, where does, you know, when does this stop? Um, and I think that's a really good question to ask. When does it stop? When will Bitcoin's energy usage as a fraction of world energy usage actually stop or start to decrease? Um, it's been increasing pretty, pretty consistently for about 10 years. Um, and it's up to 1,000th of the world's energy usage. Will, will it become 1% of the world's energy usage? Will it become 5%? Will it become 20%, 50%, 99%? I mean, at some point, it's got to stop, right? Because people still need to use energy to build things and and watch TV and listen to podcasts and take vacations and um, solve diseases and all the great things that people do with energy. There's got to be a balance point, a point where it no longer makes economic sense for people to continue to invest in hash power because that energy, if they did it, like it would, it would, they would make as much or more money doing something else with that energy. Today, if you have energy, one of the most profitable things you can do with that energy is you can burn it to become Bitcoin or anything else that runs on proof of work. You know, it depends on where you live in the world and the precise price of Bitcoin and the nature of that and uh, the amount of hash power and how it's changed recently. But there's a there's a a many times premium in certain areas of the world for taking energy and burning it in proof of work than in um, selling it to the grid and having it consumers and businesses go out and use it. Um, And in places like that. In Bitcoin mining and proof-of-work mining tends to congregate. Um, eventually, though, as the fraction of world energy that is used by Bitcoin increases, there will come a point where, on average, over the world, the marginal revenue earned by Bitcoin mining or proof-of-work mining is equal to the marginal revenue earned from selling that same energy on the grid. Today, there's a premium in some places. Eventually, it'll be equal everywhere, and I call that the Nakamoto point. The idea that Bitcoin is actually a global energy market that exists to optimize human energy usage and at the same time secures the money supply. And it's a direct identification, in fact, between money and energy, or rather the ability to transact and the ability to command and move energy around. I want to come back a second to sort of the idea we're talking about is uh, the four layers, sort of a value layer at the bottom, a payments layer, and that sort of like networking layer that was on top of that, you know, below the application layer. What, I mean, to the extent you've thought about it, like what, what would that look like? I think, you know, a lot of people right now are thinking about what that sort of layer two payments network looks like, but what would it look like to build, I don't know if they call it a mesh network or what it is on top of uh, a layer two? I mean, I think right now the innovation that layer two makes as regards to layer one is that layer two doesn't try to be a blockchain. It says, 
I'm just an IOU and I have confidence that I can settle to a blockchain faster than you can attempt to, you know, uh, game me or rob me or get around. And it's a, it's a smart uh, technology, the way that it's been built it does work. I'm referring to like hash time lock contracts. Um, I'm not, I'm less familiar with the technical implementation in Ethereum, but it's a similar idea. Essentially people are locking funds together in a channel or a private like communication stream and through networks of these channels, with various protection rules on, on them and some smart anonymous routing, large numbers of people can anonymous, like more anonymously and more quickly send each other uh, funds from the base chain. Except the key, the cool thing is they're never actually moving the funds around on the base chain. They're just exchanging IOUs on this layer too. But it's done in such a way that everybody who's part of the, of the network has confidence that if they ever wanted to, they could get back out to layer one exactly the way that they think they, their books are. They, those books could get sort of equalized onto layer one, uh, and that process would be defensible. So there's a lot of development still going on in layer two. The Lightning Network in Bitcoin is probably the furthest along implementation that's out there. It is live in mainnet. Going back to our previous point about mainnets and testnets, it is live in mainnet, and there's just a relatively small supply of Bitcoin actually in it, and a relatively small number of Lightning Hub providers and channels available, though that number is increasing all the time. I think eventually, if the Lightning Network really grows and becomes a truly large success, there are hundreds of thousands of nodes and billions of dollars of capacity um, on the network, and transactions are instant and cheap, and that sort of medium of exchange value proposition for Bitcoin starts to become realized a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more right now, it's really this store value value proposition which Bitcoin has been able to to meet in any way at all. If that starts to happen, then I think people are going to have more confidence in the Lightning Network because they have more confidence in Bitcoin. And then what will happen is people will start to say, well, you know, I can just trust Lightning as a payment system. What can I build on top of Lightning? Right. And then if Lightning becomes a foundation, you can build systems which are really fast, like the, the, in terms of their settlement times. Right. Because those systems are, are now cordoned off from the settlement issues around the base system. Lightning is solving the of that class of problems. These systems can be confident that if they're getting invoices back and forth from a lightning network or node or, 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 or process, that they can count on that in terms of ultimately getting paid, right? Those, that, that problem is abstracted downward in the stack. And so what are the class of things that you might want to build on a truly distributed, privacy-preserving payments network? Yes, commerce, like yes, distributed eBay. Yes, a lot of the examples that people are talking about. But in particular, since at this point you can shrink settlement times and you can scale transaction throughput arbitrarily highly by making various trade-offs, you can start to build really interesting mesh networks, like real systems that people can pay can get paid for via the Lightning Network and via Bitcoin that incentivize the adoption of global mesh networking. I think that the technology in terms of communications for mesh networking has existed for a long time. We've known how to make little units that transmit data wirelessly and that we could mass produce uh, and that people could, in theory, have set up. Um, we've known that for a long time and we've known how to do distributed routing for a, wrong, for a long time. What we've not known how to do is create the right incentivization structure to, for people to actually go out and do this. And that's the reason that telecommunications communications networks that we have today were built by large companies. They raise the capital, they go out and build those networks, then they own them, and then they charge rent. Um, and that's the model that worked in order to get those things built. If we have a truly robust and distributed base valueware, and we've got a lightning network that handles payments that we trust, and that has sufficient liquidity, we can start to build the settlement aspects of a mesh network right on top of the lightning network. And, you know, the, the communications aspect of, of the mesh network would still be normal internet, right? It would still presumably be um, connecting back to the normal internet to, to share information between local meshes and the internet. But eventually that could start to change too, that this whole system could in theory become self-hosting if enough people start to buy into it over time. What is the incentivization mechanism? Like, are there, you know, the distributed eBay example or the mesh network example, are there, is it a token thing? You know, similar to what we see now, but just add a different layer or are these just like these are DAOs or traditional businesses or like what how how does the incentivization incentivization different than what it is now I'm not sure that you would need necessarily a separate token I can see arguments that would encourage it and say that it would be necessary but if you think about how the lightning network works it's not a separate token it's just IOUs on top of the token that you've already decided to socially hallucinate in value which is to say Bitcoin and that's a really interesting design structure there's no new thing for me to decide to accept as valuable. I'm merely accepting IOUs on the thing that I already have and value. And we're still able to somehow create a pretty robust payment system on top of that. If, in addition to payments, that same 
those second and third layers could handle data transfer and could handle data storage costs and, and essentially make those markets efficient in the same way that Bitcoin, the base layer, is making the market for energy more efficient, that could be pretty interesting and could all be done without tokens um, on top of Bitcoin, just done via smart cryptography and uh, smart contracts like hash time lock contracts that Bitcoin uses to support the Lightning Network today. And so the idea is kind of that the people that are already invested in the Bitcoin ecosystem would want to fund this to build it out like they want to build out Lightning because it makes the underlying Bitcoin network more valuable. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, in some level, that is the social movement aspect of what Bitcoin has become. That you can look at the white paper and say, Satoshi, you know, in theory, in this white paper is saying it's a store of value. We can buy stuff with it. We can build merchant systems into it. We can, it can have a, a, a marketplace. It was very ambitious. Like all these things are going to be done in Bitcoin in the core distribution in layer one. And that's not how the ecosystem, it's not how that idea has been now digested by a lot of programmers and architects who've gone and looked at this system and decided that, well, rather what we, what we as a community have decided is important is to isolate certain classes of problems and abstractions in layer one, namely distribution, consensus, anti-censorship, robustness, like, and the connection to energy, which provides a lot of those things. And then we can start via features that layer one makes possible, such as hashes and time locks and so on. We can start to build more complex computing structures on top of this base layer. That's a nuanced and smart engineering perspective. Like if you think about your computer, your computer at the base level doesn't understand Facebook friends, right? It only understands zeros at once. It's just doing arithmetic down there. Like there are many layers of abstraction that we build on top of some basic computational platform in order to create the more complex services that we need. And there's a reason that like this layered approach, I think, is effective. And so far, it seems to be doing the best out of other approaches, which like, like try to consolidate more and more functionality into layer one. Why is it going to be hard to use Bitcoin once we are an interstellar species? <laughs> oh man, we got weird. So I, I, I think I started thinking about stuff like this because I read a forum post somewhere that was like, will it be possible to use Bitcoin when we have a moon base? And the answer is like, I think so. Yeah, I think like the light time lag between the Earth and the moon is relatively small. Will we be able to have one when we have a Mars base? Like, no, unfortunately not. Sometimes it takes many minutes to communicate between Earth and Mars. It's very difficult to synchronize um, a blockchain if it was truly between planets on our, uh, in our solar system. So it's a little bit of annoying, but like, you know, you can imagine that other sorts of systems might work. What I think is really interesting is if you start to get really wild with it and ask, okay, let's just say you're at a really huge scale, you're an interstellar species, you're traveling between the stars, there's relativity and all sorts of crazy effects are in place. How does money work in that world? I think one of the cool things about Bitcoin is that it's the first money, which is actually digital. It's, it's information. Because I think, you know, when you're actually at that, you know, in space, you can't be bringing gold coins with you, presumably. Like either our civilization that can truly go between the stars can either make gold, like they, they have mastery over atoms and they can make as much gold as they want with energy, which as we discussed is ultimately what Bitcoin really represents is energy. Either they can make gold or probably more likely they don't want to take all that extra mass with them, right? As you move between stars, you're paying to move mass. It's expensive, again, in terms of energy. And so the easiest information, the easiest thing of value that you can take with you is, is information. So either zeros and ones in the form of money or some interesting information like, like you're a spy and you have some cool data about the whole planet that you're going to share or something like this. So Bitcoin already meets that criteria in that it's, it's a digital kind of information that you could share cheaply in between the stars because you don't have to transport its mass, just its information. But it already has some challenges, as we discussed about communication times between you know, the moon and Mars. Between stars, they're even larger. They're, in fact, so large that it becomes interesting, and there's all sorts of double-spend paradoxes that show up. That it's just extremely difficult, even leaving aside blockchains, it's extremely difficult to build a bank, like any kind of a banking infrastructure between stars, because it takes years for information to travel between stars. Uh, we're bounded by the speed of light, like the universe is fundamentally local. Um, and as a result, it, you know, let's say you're in a spaceship, you know, going from here to some faraway star, you have these opportunities to set up situations where you can make your home star believe that, you know, you have a bunch of funds and you can make your target star that you're heading to believe the same thing and then you can spend them halfway in the home star and you can continue to spend them in the target star and for years the target star won't realize that you've double spent on them until that signal has a chance to bounce back and come all the way um, back to the target star um, of course discounting things like wormholes or or other kind of crazy stuff here in this in this in this already crazy discussion but i think what's cool is like thinking about that world and obviously that's such an impractical subject we're not an interstellar species we're far from it that is really interesting as a problem to consider because 
because like you say, well, what is the only form of data synchronization that we could probably rely on as a species if we really were interstellar and it took years for signals to travel between the stars? And the answer would be, it would be some form of extremely long time scale energy backed, you know, blockchain that we would have, you know, many year long block times and many decade long confirmation times, but only through a system like a blockchain, which is designed as political technology to integrate um, opinions from a wide variety of sources together and to use energy to govern everybody's vote. That's the way that we would build something like that. So I've always, I've always been a space nerd. Maybe that's obvious. And I always thought some of the problems about getting to space had to do with engines and fusion and antimatter and how do we have the energy to get up there. But I think Part of what I'm realizing is that there are some economic incentives that would need to be figured out, too. How would we ever be able to pay for and trade with faraway colonies if we didn't have distributed financial structures like blockchains? There's only a couple good sci-fi books out there that talk about this, but I anticipate that someone will write some good ones soon. What what are the good sci-fi books? Neptune's Brood by Charlie Strauss. I've not read it yet. I do own a copy. Sounds great. I've heard someone give a talk on this, and I can't read it together. This idea of like, it's really hard to agree on what time it is. Like, I, mean, I think they were talking about like, yep. context, like GPS. Like in order for GPS to work, you're sort of triangulating the location, but you have to, the three things you're triangulating from all have to agree on precisely, you know, down to the microsecond. I'm not sure how precise you have to get. You have to agree on exactly what the time is, which my understanding is like, that's actually a really hard problem to solve. It's a fundamentally hard problem to solve. I mean, I think, as I said it a minute ago, the universe is local. Like, the universe is designed so that, it, like, faraway parts of it are essentially independent, right? We talk about the observable universe being a thing. Well, two different sides of our observable universe are not any other's observable universe, right? Like, they can't even see each other. So there's, the universe is fundamentally cut off from itself in deep ways. And as we discussed with the speed of light issues, like if something bad were to happen, a black hole were to explode, some terrible stuff happens over here in some star, it takes sometimes millions of years for that information to reach us. And we're protected by that time lag. It feels like the universe is designed so that it's difficult to get a global picture on any large block of volume. Now, we're not at the scales like I'm just talking about, but that same idea is affects small volumes too. That when you're talking about a volume as large as a, as a planet Earth and a global telecommunication system, or even as small as a data center and a huge rack of servers that are all trying to be synchronized to operate some massive database, this idea of what time does everybody think it is, is actually way more subtle than it seems to be. Because if you agree that everybody gets the answer from some dude over here, then you have centralization issues. What happens if that dude or that server or that company or that entity disappears? Um, the whole system can no longer synchronize. So you want to get it from each other, but then how do you decide who's right? Like, do you vote on it? Like, there's all sorts of problems that, with that approach. It's a challenging issue. And then why is it so important to know what time it is? Because ultimately, time is about updates. If you get two updates that say, hey, add this versus delete it, or sell this versus don't, or like put the money here versus put it over there, which one do you honor? If you get, if you're a really distributed system, there's no centralized person you can consult to know the answer. Time becomes a part of usually how you make that decision. You say, well, which one came in later? That must be the right one to do. So knowing about time is knowing about the order of events of updates, which is knowing about causality, right? So the fact that the universe makes it hard to do this in a fundamental way is something that manifests itself when we build distributed systems. We're confronted with the same challenges. How do we local? How do we globally know a piece of information that we can then reflect locally at all points without having centralized control? That's on some level the problem that proof of work ultimately solves in Bitcoin, and it's part of the reason that you know, as I was just saying, blockchains are part of how we actually build these systems at scale today on the planet, but eventually, you know, across the stars. So I want to ask the question I know is on everyone's mind, which is what if Satoshi Nakamoto was a time traveler from the future who has now returned to his own time with his private keys to become the wealthiest man ever to exist? Right. I would say the first of all, the question is malformed. We don't know that Satoshi was necessarily a man. But in terms of, I, I think the odds of this being a true statement go up for me every year. Like, it's just like, uh, it's absurdly, completely farcical, like on its face. Like, this is absurd. Time, time travel doesn't exist. But Bitcoin has taught me so much about, it's broken so much of what I thought was possible in terms of how humans organize themselves and, and how st- important parts of the world work that suddenly if time travel were to be possible, I almost don't think I would bat an eyelash. But I like this idea because it kind of, to me, like, it also is like, 
Satoshi, whoever they were, had a, did a lot of things incredibly right. Like they, the software that they released had a bunch of constants built into it, had a bunch of policies. A lot of them we don't use anymore. A lot of them seem to be too general. But by and large, the, the core structure of what Satoshi built is very similar to what currently is called Bitcoin by most people. That's an incredible achievement, especially given that Satoshi hasn't been around for the last eight years or seven years or so. That's that's pretty incredible. Very few software projects um, are as well conceived as that to not have changed in their fundamental abstractions or um, or, or design structure. And, and, and in particular, I suppose even more commendably, Bitcoin doesn't have leadership as, as, as direct as, as other pieces of software, right? Yeah, there is a core team, but there's, you can fork it anytime you want. And there's an economic incentive sometimes that exists for you to do so. So despite all those kinds of challenges, we still have essentially the same structure that's just scratted a few more features and gotten a little bit more accessible um, and a little bit more secure over time. I think that's pretty incredible. So some, if Satoshi were a time traveler, again, I wouldn't be surprised. I think, though, the, the real fantasy, though, is, is because Satoshi is, is wealthy even by even today. Bitcoin's prices today, Satoshi is wealthy. So in the future, whenever the future is, if it's a 10 or 15 or 100 years from now, if Bitcoin is still around then um, and is worth a lot more, maybe Satoshi is the wealthiest person or entity ever. And I think the, the mystery and the cool, enticing part about that speculation is that Satoshi's Bitcoin is still real Bitcoin. It was never destroyed. It was never provably made unusable. It was merely left in an address. Um, and that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a, it's an incredible outcome that someone has billions of dollars of, of some form of wealth that they've never accessed in years. Either you've got to, you've got to believe that they can't anymore, or, or you've got to believe, I think, that they never will. Um, unless they're a time traveler, which would explain their incredible resolve, right? They haven't existed in this continuum at this particular time slice, and they're going to emerge, you know, out in some number of years and then act. This is not quite the same scenario, but someone pitched this to me as a screenplay, and I think it would be amazing, is... Like the movie would be Hal Finney was actually Satoshi and he got himself cryogenically frozen with his private keys and his memory. And in like 200 years, he's brought back to life and remembers his private keys and is like yeah, the wealthiest, most powerful man on earth. And then like, what? I don't know. I don't know where you go from there, like how you play that out. But that's, that was like a fascinating premise. There's so much good science fiction here too. Uh, what was it? Josh from Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. Um, I had a, I think a chat with him and he described um, another cool science fiction what if, which was what if Satoshi is a time traveler, right? And he came back in time to create an incentive for us to invest deeply in ASICs and GPUs to hold off the development of quantum computing for some amount of time, which I thought was a cool conceit. There's, I can't wait for like a, a new subclass of like Satoshi fiction or something to exist. There's a lot, yeah. There's a lot of rich veins there. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. I mean, this is weird. Like, getting weird. I think getting weird here means getting subversive because that's what I believe about Bitcoin is that on some level it is subversive. It's subversive to say that states shouldn't control the money supply, regardless of what you believe about who should control the money supply. To suggest that those who currently do it don't it, it takes power away from a lot of people who have power whether it does whether it redistributes it more equally or not that's not the question i'm asking i'm just pointing out that it it, it affects those who are in power in a deep way um, and in that sense it's it's by definition subversive going back to the ethereum bitcoin debate i sometimes think that like what is the reason i don't discount ethereum and, and i own ethereum personally and the reason i'm actually a, a solidity programmer and i'm part of the ethereum ecosystem and i enjoy it and i think it's an awesome community even though i criticize uh, some of the decisions that it's, it's made um in how it's evolved it like it's a real like it's a single entity uh, I, I the reason i still hold ethereum and i'm still a fan is because i i can't say that there's nothing that you could build that there's no thing that you could build with ethereum that you couldn't build with bitcoin and the various layers that i've outlined i suspect that there may be classes of things that having Turing completeness in the base layer makes vastly easier or makes approachable that are, are too difficult or too cumbersome to build in the Bitcoin model where the base layer is extremely dumb, but very secure and robust. And you have to build your state and your complexity in various layers on top of it. I think, again, Ethereum can always have those layers, but since it's more capable um, at the base layer, maybe there are things that it can do that Bitcoin cannot do. And in my mind, I think the class of things that it must, like the answer to that question is, has to be a really deeply subversive application. And I think, you know, if you think, like, what is the value of Bitcoin? Like, what kind of money is so valuable that you would pay a premium in cost and price and, and lose out on usability and fungibility and exchangeability? What, what money is so, 
Like, what would the money have to be to convince you to, to want to want some, as Bitcoin has done to people worldwide? And it's clear that the answer is be subversive, right? Be robust, be censorship resistant, be this kind of thing that you feel like you have sovereign control over and that doesn't, uh, cannot be confiscated by the government if you live in a government where you worry about, you know, things like that, like Venezuela today, can't be inflated away by the government, right? Like in Venezuela. So I think that the application of sound money is inherently subversive. What is the analog that you need a Turing, Turing machine for, right? What is the Ethereum analog of an app for the first application, like sound money as to Bitcoin, that is so deeply subversive that you have to put it on a blockchain? Because if you didn't put it on a blockchain, someone would stamp it out. And I think the answer to that has got to be something related to identity or expression or, or some of the political controversies that are brewing um, in a lot of media today. I'm just curious, where do you think the conversation goes wrong today? There, like, what, what do you think people have big misconceptions about or, or really misunderstand that you think is worth addressing or, mm-hmm. or, or discussing? Yeah, I think people completely underestimate the role of custody. I think so many of the services that are going to happen um, and, and the way that the ecosystems are going to structure themselves can be driven by how custody works. That's individual and consumer custody around things like hardware wallets. There's also business custody, things like multi-sig and collaborative vaulting models for how to keep coins safe over the long term. I mean, we're only protecting as an entire ecosystem a few hundred billion dollars of value today. That's a lot, but it's not you know, a few tens of trillions. At that scale, I mean, we start to worry about like state-level attacks and all sorts of other schemes that we don't have to deal with today. And I think there's so many people just completely unconcerned with ideas of custody, like take your coin here, put them over there, and rehypothecate it over there, and throw it into this tool and that other tool. That attitude, I think, is um, it, it's a little dangerous. There's a lot of services that get built that way that don't really question the nature of custody. And what we're creating is, just like people worry about mining consolidation, we're creating custody consolidation. We're creating more and more pools that have more and more of the funds. And I just, uh, I, I wonder how long it will be until we have another news story of a major hack or loss. The communities have been very lucky that for a while we've not had such attacks, at least for a while. But I, I suspect they'll, they'll come again. In particular, now that we've had the rise of crypto funds, a lot of the whom ultimately consolidate where they store their investors and LPs funds into one of a few different custody providers. If you were starting a VC or crypto hedge fund in the space today, what would your, uh, what would your thesis last strategy be? Man, I'm not a good investor. Um, I think I um, let's let's take this with a grain of salt. I would be I would be deeply into Bitcoin as a as a long term defensible blockchain that's really shown a lot of promise. I would own a lot of ETH. I would actively try to invest in businesses that reasonably create value in both of those spaces. I think what I mean by reasonably is I guess I guess it really means sustainably create value in those in those spaces. Too many businesses go out and try to create a token or create some kind of rent-seeking approach by which um, they're going to uh, use decentralization as um, just kind of a lure or bait to get a lot of, to dupe a lot of um, unsophisticated low-information retail investors. I think the businesses that really are the ones worth backing are those that offer services which are fundamentally impossible to distribute. I would give an example of my own business as being in that space. Like We do lending, but in particular, we do lending of US dollars for Bitcoin and Ethereum as collateral. That we do not, for example, offer Bitcoin today for Bitcoin as cloud. We don't do crypto to crypto lending. One day we might want to do that, but today we don't do that. The chief reasons for it are, are first of all, there's the question of, of use case. It feels to us that like being able to borrow fiat for your Bitcoin is a more is a better pain point because a lot of people still have bills in fiat, but. Also, when you, when you think about crypto to crypto borrowing, the, it's fundamentally something that should be done just using a blockchain. Why does a centralized company like ours have any role there? There's a smart contract that one could imagine writing that would handle the entirety of it. It's by bringing dollars into play that our company has to create like a, a relationship with the government um, and essentially a bridge, right? And bridges are where you can have toll booths and where they make sense. And so if I was an investor, if I was investing in companies for equity, I would be looking at models that try to work the way mine does, which is that they find a value proposition, which is very difficult to replicate using distributed approaches like smart contracts or blockchain native solutions, and therefore earn their right to charge a toll and because they built that bridge. Those would be the ones that I would, I would try to own a piece of. Um, exchanges are another really good example. If you're a really safe exchange with good marketing and a good user experience, you've 
solved a big part of that coincidence problem to get buyers and sellers together. You deserve to be compensated. You deserve to be able to charge a fee. I think your business, you know, if you're an exchange, you're a little bit threatened by versions of yourself, which are a little bit more distributed, like centralized exchanges are threatened a little bit by distributed exchanges like that run on things like zero X and similar. But at the end of the day, like there's still, even in those models, kind of like the lightning network, there's distribution, but there's still private enterprise that lightning hub operators and zero X relayers are private companies that get compensated for doing their job well and therefore deserve to be paid. It's not like trying to run a business which is secretly just a massive exit scam on top of a distributed protocol. So I feel like that's the overall shape of the kinds of projects I would pick is, is when, if you're investing in private companies, invest in companies whose business model inherently adds value in a way that's impossible to replicate in a distributed fashion. You've chosen a particular approach with, with Unchained. What other like elements of maybe traditional finance do you want to see disrupted or innovated on? Or perhaps like another way of phrasing this question is what's your sort of request for projects or startups or, or experimentation? Like when talented builders come to you and sort of brainstorm, like you're looking for ideas within the, within, you know, sort of adjacent and surrounding spaces. What's something you want to, you want other people to go disrupt or innovate on? No, that's a great question. Yeah. There's definitely things that we're, we're always like, Hey man, I wish that this thing would show up so that we could use it. Right. I would say chief among those are a couple of different categories. The first is probably securities, um, token exchanges that are usable, well-conceived, flexible and, and, and legal, and then provide the same kind of solve the same kind of problem that Coinbase and other uh, traditional exchanges solve for tokens. Our company, as much as I just talked about releasing useless tokens, we don't want to release useless tokens, but we do believe that there'd be a lot of value in releasing a security token that represents the loan book that our company has already originated. That's not a useless token. It's not predicated upon some hypothetical value. It's predicated upon a cash flow that we get from loans that we've originated. It's a very traditional kind of financial instrument, um, but we would just be releasing it using you know, a blockchain-based protocol that would make it easier to transact, more transparent. The challenges in doing so are, of course, that such a thing would be a security. And to do it legally in the United States, there would be a bunch of constraints that we would have to enforce on the purchasers of that security, various other rules, things that we don't necessarily want to tackle ourselves. And there are a lot of companies working in the security token marketplace uh, game. There's uh, uh, several competitors now that are trying to become the solution for companies like ours and others. But I just wish they would get here fast. Um, I'm a little bit worried that a lot of them are not really tackling the product aspects of this problem. Like, in, for example, in our in our use case, our token would have dividends. Those dividends might be paid in cash. Like, there's a U.S. bank account. There's a bank account connected to token kind of question that someone needs to solve for us um, in order for us to really be able to do this effectively. Um, so there's a bunch of features there that I'd like. To exist. I'm happy to report that now some people are starting to work on it. So there is a little bit of uptake, but they're not real yet. And I really want them to be. So that's one major area where if you're, if you're developing and you want to build stuff, like do that. I would say the, another really important area is development tools and security and auditing. Um, that I think too, that's a little bit too hard right now. I, I'm starting to see some really sexy tools for developers to, to both train them as well as analyze their code to help them be safer as they put stuff out there. But just knowledge is so thin on the ground right now that it's difficult, that most developers don't even know what they're doing. They aren't experienced yet with this kind of technology. So tools and modes for your editor and linting tools and static analysis tools all lag behind. Um, and if you're someone that wants to get in and really learn the space and you're a developer, that's a really good way to get in there and learn is to write a tool for developers. It gets you very conversant with the underlying protocol and the way the languages work um, and so on. Totally. How does custody play out in the long run? Like it seems like when you think of digital bearer assets, it seems like sort of anathema to just the idea of like third party custody. Like no matter, no matter how you set it up, like this ends up with like someone being a, a honeypot. Like how does, what do you think that ecosystem looks like? I don't know, 10, 20 years from now. I think the answer is distribution. I mean, uh, like, the analogy I give is like, you know, your, your, your front door lock, like you might have a few keys or a few different people that can unlock your front door and you've shared those keys with like your neighbor and like your best friend and like your mom or whatever. And in case you're locked out or in case someone needs to get into your house when you're not home, there are backup keys. There's people you collaborate with. This is a bad analogy in multiple ways. One, and there's only one lock on your door usually, or there's one key or uh, which opens the lock, but sometimes there's multiple keys, right? You might have three locks on your door and you usually um, lock two or whatever, but that's a very poor analogy to multi-sig, but like that's one broken part of the analogy. The other extremely broken part of the analogy is that the lock company is just a centralized company. 
right? That like the lock company made all the locks and there's, they have a master key or some doodad or some way that they can get in and bust open the locks. The third way that the uh, analogy is broken is that, <laughs> this is a terrible analogy. The third way that the analogy is broken is that you can always just blow down a door. You can just kick it down or whatever, right? So, but the, where I was going with the analogy is that what people really do to protect many assets is they collaborate, right? Like they don't, in order to like have a spare key for their home, they don't take a key and mail it to a centralized key storage service and then keep it over there. Like no one does that. And the reason we don't do that is because we have people that we trust. And what we really need in crypto is a way to store funds with people that we trust in a mutually collaborative way, the way that we might share house keys with a neighbor. Like we need some, some scheme like that that prevents the creation of single honeypots because security has been distributed. So the analogy might be like, let's say you have a hardware wallet and you have a hardware wallet. You might have one hardware wallet for work. You might have one hardware wallet for your personal life, kind of in the same way that you have a keychain for work at the office to open up rooms in the office and you have a keychain for your home and, and your car and, and your vacation home or whatever. And these separate hardware wallets, because of the flexibility of BIP32 space, there's no reason why the same hardware wallet couldn't be utilized in many multiple quorums with different parties under different configurations, right? Your at-home hardware wallet could be in a two-of-two configuration with your partner or your spouse, right? So that you have a joint bank account kind of thing or a joint savings account. And you could be in a one-of-two situation with your partner's keys in a checking account. That's a classic example that a lot of Bitcoin literature uses. Um, But you might also be in like a two-of-three relationship with a bunch of funds with your two brothers, right? Maybe you guys have an investment little group that you've created. Maybe you are in a two out of three with your investment manager and your lawyer and they, and collectively the three of you protect your funds that way. Maybe your work hardware wallet is involved in a bunch of accounts similarly at work. Different teams have N out of N access to various expense accounts and things that they're protecting or trading against or whatever else you want. There's not really a deep reason why we have to create honeypots. We do it today because Doing this in a distributed way where everyone is a key holder with everyone by themselves if they choose to be and in collaboration with people they already trust is difficult. But there are companies working on solutions, including my own. And I think ultimately the, the right model to have in your mind is it's not plate mail where there's some really massive thick wall at one place that prevents you know someone from getting access. It's more like chain mail, right? Where collectively as a society, we have little links and little rings and circles of trust that we create with our friends, our acquaintances, our neighbors that are all total, like they all overlap because as humans, we have multiple quorums we'll be part of, but they're all like sort of independent. And like together, they create a much stronger fabric that no hacker can just go find one set of wallet words, crack it open and see, you know, 20, $2 billion of Bitcoin in there and then move it. We have to move to a distributed world. Like Bitcoin has given us the technology to have distributed money, but we haven't really built a distributed key management infrastructure or training or awareness like to make it really scalable. That'll happen though. It just requires a bunch of people to get robbed. That's interesting. I was thinking about like this idea and I was calling it like the conservation of anti-fragility. I'm not sure if that's the right idea, but like Bitcoin is... Uh, like to your point about custody, it's it's fragile at the individual layer in exchange for like robustness at the, the protocol layer or the, I don't know if you call it like the lower layer. So like people lose their private keys all the time. Uh, and so the, you know, that Bitcoin is irrecoverable, but they don't. Or, or, or how about Bitcoin solved the problem only partially, right? It, it solves the problem of if you have a key that you have secured, I can secure your money with this key. It does not solve the problem of how does one secure a key. Right. But I guess that to me seems better. Well, it did not, I don't know if it's better. It's different. Like the idea now of if you have sort of these like centralized services, centralized banks, you have much less frequent disruptions or, you know, black swan bad events, but the effect of those is potentially like much, much worse. Like what you would want is some sort of model where yeah, like the chain mail thing, right? Like if, if you're pierced in one particular area, it doesn't, there's no contagion effect where it spreads everywhere else. Yeah. I saw Justin Maris's talk from the same, um, same event where you, where you get to talk to uh, the refactor event that you put on Taylor. There's often this, this, this idea that, um, you know, there's market failures and there's sort of, you know, response to that is either a get better markets or better, you know, incentive networks and, and crypto's trying to do that. I have like, one response is have, have more markets to solve the problems that the other markets you created or they were originated from, from them. And the other way is, you know, have some, let's have some sort of government intervention or, or another sort of entity intervene to try to, uh, you know, solve these negative externalities. 
where do you guys net out on on your thoughts there? On some level, I'm kind of just just me speaking, just Drew speaking. I, I feel like I'm kind of with Curtis Yarvin on this one, like in the sense that all money is a bubble, and that uh, everything that we choose to endow with moneyness is inherently temporary, and it's just the current best thing for us in that location and time period to use as money. It's the thing that has the most moneyness and that's why we use it. Um, and it's inherently a bubble because you know, money is just, it's just, it's always going to change as technology changes and our local circumstances change and so on. So in that sense, I view the idea of then in particular on top of that building stable forms of money that are controllable and so on. It, the, the fiat approach to that is always, let's just have humans decide and use hierarchy and like telecommunications technology to broadcast an opinion wide enough so that everyone believes in it. Engineering of stable coins on distributed systems like blockchains is extremely interesting to me because you're trying to capture some of the quote unquote squishy money manipulable money supply, um, manipulable incentives and rates. You're kind of trying to manipulate some, uh, some of the same variables on an economy that traditionally is done by a group of very credentialed and hierarchical people that are you know, charged with that mandate. You're trying to replicate something like that. You can argue that on some level by completely going market-driven and encoding the way the market's mechanics work and then letting participants operate in it, you, you can optimize it even better than a hierarchy that is sort of subject to manipulation and, and political and politics and all sorts of other stuff. I don't know. I don't know enough about economics or monetary policy to decide that. But it does seem to me interesting that like if we could reframe the problem to not being, hey, can we build a stable coin to instead making it about like how stable can the coin that we build be, right? Like under what market dynamics can we be confident of its stability to some confidence level? That's a much more, it's not as maybe a sexy way to describe it, but it's a more realistic thing to build. And then it just becomes about learning more about incentive engineering. And this is why I think about blockchains as political technology, right? Learning more about the technology and learning to engineer it better so that we kind of shape it and make a box as large and as stable as we can for the market. It's part of the reason, again, I think that you know people will build stable coins on top of Bitcoin as they're already building on top of Ethereum. And there's no reason you can't have a, one, a money supply on one layer that is totally different than the money supply on a different layer if you have smart engineering about it. So that's how I think eventually the market will, will learn to self-metal by coming up with schemes that, that it writes for itself and then voting you know, with, with money to decide which schemes seem to work the best. But I do think that inherently the problem is insoluble, that all money is bubbles and that any stablecoin scheme is eventually, or any attempt at engineering stability into any dynamic distributed leaderless system like this is bound to have regimes in which it's going to fail. And most systems will eventually explore their um, phase space broadly enough to find those regimes and then fail if you give them enough time. So it's not about can you prevent it or can you build a completely stable coin. Arguably the Fed and the U.S. government can't really build a completely stable coin. Their history is quote unquote only a few hundred years long. So I think as long as you bound the problem by saying it's about probabilities, you start to make progress by treating it as something to optimize for. I find this idea can't remember the paper. It's uh, Friedrich Hayek talking about like price is sort of like an information gathering tool, right? So, you know, you're able to, if you have a market, you know, wheat futures or whatever, the price of the wheat futures is actually aggregating all this information from all over the world, right? You know, there's famine in Siberia or there's like extra rain in Kansas and there's like market participants that are like, you know, buying or selling these wheat futures based on all this information coming in. And so like markets to me in that way seem incredibly like efficient or I don't know if elegance is the right word. They're able to aggregate all the that information. Like I remember reading there are these papers from like the early part of the Cold War where all these sort of like US diplomats or foreign policy people are sort of like bemoaning and worried about this idea that, oh, well, you know, like we're in a democracy and so we can't, you know, we can't plan out 20, 30 years down the line, whereas like because the... You know, the Soviet state is basically a, you know, a dictatorship or it's controlled by one individual. You know, they can plan like 20, 30, you know, they can do these like five-year plans or 20-year plans. And so that'll actually be better. But you know, there was a book called uh, Seeing Like a State. I think it was something, something like why all the utopian visions in the 20th century failed. And a lot of them in my mind come back to this like information problem that like whenever you have sort of like a central planner or like whatever the equivalent of a central planner is like that individual is not able to process that information as efficiently as if you were using a market, like sort of what Drew was saying about stable coins. So I guess like that sort of like intuitively makes, makes sense to me that you could solve those problems more 
efficiently through a market than through some sort of like external regulation. But I'm sure there's probably downsides to that that I haven't really thought about. Yes, yeah, so, so the, I mean, the, the question or another question is, you know, is because yeah, the role of governance, regulation, and market economies to correct for market failures, and in a decentralized economy, will that role you know dwindle down to zero? Is part of the crypto thesis that there are no true market failures, only distortions created by regulation itself? I think there are a lot that would say that market failures are a healthy part of of a necessary cycle, like this very Austrian perspective that many people seem to have. It's that's really hard for me to say. I mean, honestly, it's one of the aspects of Bitcoin that I feel less certain in. I, I really like the connection to energy. I like the privacy and anti censorship aspects. Um, I appreciate the technology. One can imagine a world in which Bitcoin had a permanent inflation of one percent or something like this, right? Like the code wouldn't have to be spectacularly different. It would have worked arguably very similarly, but who knows what the prior 10 years history would have been or the future 100 years history. I really don't know. And that experiment is very hard to replicate. Many coins have tried doing things like this, but no coin has ever taken off the scale that Bitcoin has to really make it a fair experiment. So in terms of whether Bitcoin's monetary policy is correct, that the supply should essentially be remain fixed and that, you know, allow cycles to happen, allow businesses to fail, don't manipulate the money supply, don't manipulate the base interest rates of, of the money supply. I think I can see why those who argue for it, why why they believe that. I do see some of the arguments against it in terms of money being squishy and that the need to insulate the market against failure and so on. I don't know what the right outcome is, but it seems like the Bitcoin, a lot of people in the Bitcoin world are more inclined to just let the market fail and maybe to your point, treat the market's failure as the now correction of a bad and inefficient you know, cul-de-sac market had gotten itself into and is now falling back out of. I think it's a difference in framing sometimes between what, what can and should be happening. But at the same time, I, it's very difficult to deny that there are really useful um, cases where having something be guaranteed to be stable over some finite period of time is really useful and has positive effects. So I think it just goes back to people will try to engineer those things where they can. Inherently, they're bound to fail at some point. But I mean, that's just, that's just maybe necessary. Like one stable coin. Maybe there are time periods in human history where things should not be stable and the attempt to make them so is actually deleterious and that those coins should fail in those time periods. And the reason you get paid as an investor in stable coins is to be able to take that risk. Yeah, I guess my intuition is sort of that what makes sense to me is you have given sort of like the dynamics of the system, you have like certain amounts of like volatility or change like inherent to that. And like, I think what's, and this is sort of like, you know, my attempt to summarize and seem to loves, you know, black swan and all that kind of ideas. Like a lot of what's happened in, you know, quote unquote modernity is that we've like traded regimes of like mild to moderate volatility, like persistent mild to moderate volatility for regimes of like long periods of stability with these like black swans or these like big, these big events and that those, those things have, you know, asymmetric downsides that, you know, the, the stock market crashing by like 90% is more than twice as bad as it crashing by uh, 45% or the analogy that I've heard is like, you know, it's not jumping off a hundred foot wall is like more than a hundred times worse than jumping off a one foot wall, right? Like you can jump off a one foot wall a hundred times and like, that's no big deal. Uh, but if you jump off a hundred foot wall one time, you know, it's, probably going to end very badly and you won't be jumping off walls anymore. So this idea of you could sort of like distribute the risk out, right? That you could have this more like a chain mail as opposed to plate mail system where you could have parts of the system fail, you know, relatively gracefully for the rest of the system seems to me, that seems like more robust, like that could last longer and would be, you know, net, net better um, in terms of like the well-being of the system participants over time. This has been a fantastic episode, guys. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Taylor. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 